0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, Upper Room. My name is Malcolm, and I have the privilege of reading scripture for you this morning. And our passage today comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. And it says... a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give, a wife, give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and uh, that's kind of a funny passage to say thanks be to God to, so we're going to get into that today. It's part of our sex talk uh, that we are having in in the church, and uh, we said that... um, the word sex talk kind of reminds you, like one of our elders said last week, should called it sexy talk, people like that better than sex talk, because sex talk just reminds you of the awkward conversation you had with your parents growing up, and it just sort of brings up this issue that, in a sense, sex is everywhere and is a part of our lives, but most of us were not really actually told what to do with it and how it works and why and everything. It really wasn't explained to us that we figured it out from our friend Billy in grade four, so um, that's one of the things that we said, um, it is everywhere, like this, this week when one of my kids, uh, my youngest, was singing, uh, I'm in love with your body. Uh, I'm in love with your body. And, it, and we're like, uh, do you know what that means? Like, well, they, and so we kind of explained t- to him, like, what's that about and why that's not so appropriate. And he's like, well, they blast it at school every day. And I'm thinking, yeah, right before the class where they say, you shouldn't objectify people. But I'm in love with your body. It's not even I'm in love with you. And the, and the song begins, you know, God love Ed Sheeran, right? Very talented musician. But, you know, the, a, the club's no place to meet a lover, so I'll go to the bar. And then he started dancing with this girl, and I'm in love with your body. That's basically, I am not in love with you. I just met you. But I am in love with your body. And so sex is just everywhere. It's everywhere. I know you all sing it, right? Like, and so the church traditionally, in a sense, has, has sort of had one of two reactions to, to sex stuff, and that is to basically adopt the values of the culture, and just sort of assimilate, but really not talk about it as the church, but pretty much people who go to church doesn't actually change or make any difference to how they view their sexuality. Or you have uh, uh, the other spectrum of the church, which kind of says, oh, that's evil, it's all bad, like plug our ears, la 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 la, let's hide out, and let's, and, but still, let's not talk about it until as someone said to me uh, like a a couple years ago we were preaching on on sex She, she said to me you know when i got the sex talk the night before i got married my mom's calling me. I'm like, Mom, are you serious? Like, now you're telling me this this panic of like 20-something years and all of a sudden, well, I better tell her. And so we said, man, like as the church, we have to be talking about this stuff. Like this should be a place where we are able to talk about something that is everywhere, but that many of us, either in our homes or our, our religious upbringing or whatever, it just never came up. And I know if you're, if you're from a non-North American culture, right? Like there's all kinds of other things within that. We get so most of, people from sort of Asian or South Asian cultures like where I'm from are saying like, oh that that would have never come up in my home like still and even if we I would say the word you know everybody would sort of run and hide even though we know you know you you know you got here by sex you know like you don't like to think about that but like that's that's what happens everywhere and it's like man in the church we should be able to talk about this and understand what God has to say to us about it. Um, this morning, and so we're actually doing a three-week series. We started last week on the difference between love and lust, and so if you missed that, you can grab that online. And this week, we want to talk about same-sex relationships because that is a hot-button issue in our culture and has been for many years, and I would say it is maybe one where the church also feels very awkward or whatever, really doesn't talk about it or doesn't engage with it, and say, well, what does this actually mean? Some churches do, but some churches don't, and we want our church to be a place where everything is in play to talk about, because as we will find in scripture, everything's in play. Our whole lives matter to God. Um, as, as we think about that, I wanted to just kind of think, okay, so what is it that people, when they think about God and the church and same-sex relationships, what are the things that sort of people are saying? What's the sex talk around that? And here's some things that came to mind. Here's what some Christians and churches have said. God hates gay people. Um, gay people are ruining marriage, which we know the heterosexuals ruined it long before gay people want to get married, okay? Gay people are going to hell. Um, God sent AIDS as a judgment on gay people for their lifestyle choice. Um, Others say, well, Christians in the church, they shouldn't associate with gay people and the gay community. That's what some churches and some Christians, that's what I've seen, that's what I've heard, that's what I've read, and maybe you've seen and heard and read some of that too. Maybe that was the tradition you grew up in, and maybe it wasn't explicitly said, but it was kind of like, yeah, that's basically what we believe. And there are other Christians and churches who have said this, well, the scriptural pras- passages that prohibit same-sex sex are not referring to same-sex orientation as we know it today. Like, those are different. They don't, they don't really apply. They're not the same thing. Or that same-sex orientation is a created characteristic, and therefore, same-sex relationships are not against God's will. Um, some will say the Bible promotes committed one-flesh union regardless of sexual orientation. Like, it's not about, that's not what matters. It's the committed one-flesh um, monogamous union. And others say, well, Jesus actually never prohibits same-sex relationships or marriage. And then there's the average person on the street who says, you know what, God and Christians are bigots. And the Bible is an oppressive and repressive book, especially when it comes to gay people. Those are sign, I'm oversimplifying, but those are some of the things that we say, well, we say, well, from those who are the Christian right and those who are the Christian left and those who are saying, we're done with the Christian right and the Christian left. And maybe you've heard some of that and maybe some of those things, you're like, yeah, I'm kind of struggling actually with those questions too. And so I think here's what we want to say. Respectfully, Jesus and the New Testament writers would disagree with all of those statements. Jesus and the New Testament writers would disagree with all of those statements. Say something actually different that we actually need to hear and listen and read. See, Jesus is one of those people that I think we can say, even if, you're, even if you're not sure he's the son of God, and you're, you're not sure you believe all of the claims that he made about himself and that the church has actually said about him, that he's not just a man, but he was God. Most people in the world can acknowledge there isn't a single person in human history that has done more for equality, unity, love, and tolerance than Jesus. If you think about it, all of the things in us that, we find that we want to embrace the values of tolerance and the inherent dignity of each human being, the inherent value and worth of each person, um, and, and the, the inherent desire, the good desire to love and be loved. These are things that the Jesus movement actually brought to the front. They're the things that, a lot of those things are words that we use in the conversation about same-sex relationships in the church. All of those values, any place that you go where Christianity has been for centuries, you will find values for tolerance and equality and labor boards and the inherent dignity of each person regardless of social class, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity. That's the Jesus movement, friends. Jesus was the one in his life and teaching. You read through the gospel, systematically you'll see him destroying all of the barriers that separate people of gender and ethnicity, social class, and even religious beliefs, and even sort of moral persuasions. That Jesus was the most radically inclusive person we have ever known. And any place the Jesus movement has been, you will find these values. Not fully lived out, but certainly said, hey, this is what we value. And so I think that's why we say, yeah, absolutely we want to come to Jesus and hear what he has to say in a conversation like this and he is the one if there's any person in all of history who has the authority to shape our minds around this it is someone who changed the world when it comes to human relationships right we also find with jesus though <laughs> that he's a bit tricky he's not like oprah <laughs> you no know, there's oprah's a lot like jesus in some ways but he's not a lot like Oprah. It's sort of not this vanilla, sort of everything, let's love, let's give away toasters today or whatever. Like, that's just what this is about. Jesus, interestingly, we find him to be both universally appealing and universally offensive. Like, there are things that Jesus says that we go, oh, yeah, like, man, that just, made, that just resonates so much with what I believe about the world and myself and God. And there are other things that Jesus says that you're like, what, really? Jesus, do you mean that? Would you ask me to do that? And what's interesting, it's not the same issues. Like Timothy Keller sort of points this out as one of the proofs, actually, if you think about it, that Jesus is really God. is because... Some of his teachings offend some, and the same teachings others find universally appealing. In Western culture, the teaching of turning the other cheek, if somebody slaps you, we find so progressive. Oh, that's so pacifist, that's so peace-loving. If, if more people just practice that, the world would be a better place. But you go to an honor-shame culture in another part of the world, in the, in the Middle Eastern world, you say, where honor is everything. If somebody slaps you in the face, you have to defend and protect your family honor. You don't turn the other cheek. That's foolish. That's stupid. And so some parts of the world would find that aspect of Jesus teaching so progressive and others would say, that's offensive. Whereas the Western world finds Jesus teaching on sexuality kind of offensive and more um, uh, uh, no, traditional cultures would say, yeah, yeah, that's right. Should be more conservative, right? Some we find offensive, others appealing. What this means is no, corner, no culture has the corner on Jesus. Nobody can say, oh yeah, you say exactly everything that our culture likes or our kind of people like or our social class. He was universally appealing and universally offensive. And isn't that what God would be like in the sense that some things we love, other things we struggle, but they're different depending on who we are. It actually says, wow, there's something about the scriptures say Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth which if we're honest, that's really what we need in life. We want to see and know radical acceptance. We want to see what is unconditional love really look like across every kind of boundary that human beings would like to build. We want to see, and, and, and the scriptures say, Jesus is full of grace. <clears throat> but he's also full of truth. <laughs> we need to know what's real. What is reality actually? What is life really about? And the scriptures say, Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to be open to him talking to you about this. Because Jesus says, come into my kingdom. I didn't just come to save you. I came to be your Lord. So come into my kingdom. I'm going to show you a new way to be human. I'm going to show you a new way to live. And of course, I'm going to talk to you about your sex life. Because that's so much a part of who you are and so much a part of the culture. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot duck the words of Jesus on this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be saying, great, I can duck this. Let me give you a, a reason why, why to stay with them. Is that I believe that we are a culture, if you look at it, like I said last week, we have become totally addicted to sex. And it's actually ruining us. And our pursuit of sexual freedom is actually landing. Like there are epic levels of people addicted to pornography. It's sex addiction. It's probably one of the most widespread, I said to you last week that the study in Ontario high school is that two-thirds of grade 11 boys are regularly using it. That, that's, there's, no, there's, nobody that, there's not that high percentage addicted to cocaine. We don't have two-thirds of grade 11 boys using heroin or crack cocaine, but we do pornography. So there are epic and continuing to be waves of sex addiction. So I think we need to say, you know what, our pursuit of freedom that each person can just do whatever they want to do where this, as long as they don't hurt anybody and other person consents, it's not working for us. So we need to go back and say, okay, Jesus, you need to speak grace and truth into this part of my life. So I just invite you wherever you are in the journey to come along for the ride here today. Before we get to the texts, I think we just need to be honest about the fact that the church has a lot of repentance to do when it comes to the matter of same-sex relationships. Like the church has a lot of repentance to do when it comes to being judgmental. To being angry. And I'm saying the church capital C. And you might say, well, no, no, our church is not like that. But I think part of what we realize is, look, the Jesus movement in many ways has not acted like Jesus at all. We have perpetuated the accusations of bigotry slander and even violence and name calling and marginalization and isolation and some of the very high suicide rates among the gay community. The church, in part, is responsible for that in far, insofar as we've said there's no place for you here. There's no place for you to talk about this. There's no place for you to struggle with it. There's no place for you here. And so in many ways, I'm not putting that all on the church, but I think we have to say, hey, our part, religion has done its part to push away and marginalize a whole community in, in our culture. And we just need to repent of that and saying, that's actually not like Jesus at all. We've actually taken upon ourselves to try to change people, to change their sexual orientation, to change their behavior. And the scriptures are really clear, actually, that the church is not supposed to try to change people outside the church, but we're just supposed to deal with ourselves and repent of the things that we need to change of. And we let God be God in the world. So we need to repent of that. We also need to repent of hypocrisy (laughs) Because there's all kinds of other things when you read in the scriptures and the things that are listed as sins. So often we look at, oh, sexual immorality and orgies and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, that's so evil. But then mixed in all those lists every time. Greed. Envy. Jealousy. Anger. Slander. And let's be honest. Like, gay marriage is not destroying the church. What destroys every church that splits or its doors closes? Greed. Greed. Anger, jealousy, fits of rage, unforgiveness—all of the things that, quite frankly, if someone came up to us and said, "You know, I'm struggling with gossip," we'd be like, "Oh, okay, kind of weird." No one confesses that. And when was the last time someone came up to you and confessed greed? I can tell you, as a pastor, nobody confesses those sins to me. So we all think we don't have it. And said, "Oh, I, I, oh yeah, that's okay." But if someone said, "You know, and I'm struggling with..." You know, sexual morality. I'm sleeping with my boyfriend, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, I'm, I'm sleeping with I'm a man, I'm sleeping with another man, what do I do? Even that, we'd say, oh, well, if it's someone of the opposite sex, okay, that's okay, we'll pray for understanding. understand it. But that, oh, that's something totally different. Meanwhile, the scripture actually has no hierarchy of sin lists anywhere. And even more profound. There's a, there's a few passages about same-sex relationships in the scriptures, but there are only about, there are five, and they're clear. We're getting into that. But there are hundreds of passages about generosity and about fighting injustice, and that God's people oftentimes are are judged by God for not doing anything about poverty and slavery in their midst. And so if we as a church are not willing to deal with and repent of those things and say, you know what, as a church, by and large, capital C, we are out of line with God's will. We are walking in disobedience to what God has called us to do in being agents of love and change in the world. If we're not willing to repent of that, we have no business talking about sexuality. And so I I think this is one of the many things that we talk about as the church and deal with and say, God, help us, change us, lead us, give us new hearts and new minds, help us to become people that are like you. I know that's a long preamble, but it's so necessary. It's actually, it's totally a part of the conversation that we're just not saying. And so I think we just need to repent of that and to continue as the church to say, God, how do we walk in line with your will and what you want for us in our lives? How do we let you be the Lord? Of our lives and our money, and our thoughts, and our sex life. Well, what do the scriptures say? Like I said there's not there's not many texts, but there are a few. And they're clear. And I want to go into one for you in, in Romans 1, and it's very short, and we're going to get on to some of the things that Jesus say after this, but this is one of the letters by the Apostle Paul. And I want to read it for you for two reasons. One, I think it is very clear, but it's also often misunderstood and, so, and, and used in the sense in the church to talk about this issue, and so I want to get into it. So read Romans 1, 25 to 27. They, and he's talking about the human race, okay? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Stop there. He's talking about what has happened in the history of the world with human beings. This is what they've done. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things instead of the creator. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. I think on the one hand, we have to say, and some of the gay Christian movement that's sort of looking at these passages saying, well, no, same-sex sex is not actually what's being talked about here. I think what we need to be clear is we're not talking about same, like, uh, sexual orientation. We're talking about sexual practice, engaging in sex with people of the same sex. I think we need to be clear is that that's, it's pretty clear. And the other passages, it's, pretty, it's not addressed a lot in Scripture, but when it is, now, oftentimes people will say, oh, see, like that's so unnatural. What is this natural, unnatural thing? Well, this, that passage actually is talking about all of the human race. And here's what is meant by natural and unnatural. Every single one of us has a bent and desire towards things that are unnatural. What is the unnatural? It's to, it's to be our own master. It's to be our own God. The natural way that is being spoken about here in creation is to trust God. The unnatural way that all of creation, every one of us has done, is to say, I don't really trust you with my life, with my money, with my decisions, with who I'm going to marry, with how I'm going to live my life and how I'm going to be in this job. I'm going to decide to do it myself. That is the natural unnatural. way. He says they exchange the truth of God. In other words, the truth of who God is in all reality For a lie, and they worshipped themselves instead of God. That is the natural, unnatural that's being spoken about. And in that sense, and then Paul just gives one example. He says, For example, same sex relationships are the opposite of the way that God designed us to be, just like every other bent you and I have. That we have within us this desire to be our own lords, to be our own gods, to decide our own rules for ourselves. That is what is unnatural about the human race. And he just gives one example of it. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, those of you who judge people who do that, it just reveals that you also are unnatural. You are judging as well. And be careful because if you judge, you are under judgment. He's casting this sort of thing, in a sense, over the whole human race, saying we're all in the same boat here. We all have desires and inclinations that we might think, hey, this is legitimate, this is right, I need this, whatever that is. Fill in the blank for you and for me. But that is not the way we were meant to live as human beings. We were meant to live under the rule and the order of God. You might say, okay, so what, what, like, so too bad for me? If, if I'm someone who's same-sex attracted, too bad I can't be in a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex? What does that mean? Too bad for my friends, too bad for my siblings, too bad for people that I'm related to, that I love. Like, what, Is that, that it? What about Jesus? Doesn't Jesus actually speak into this? And I believe he does, and and I need you to stay with me on this, because actually this isn't just about those of you that are struggling with same-sex attraction and trying to figure out, hey, can I express that and and still be a Christian? This isn't just about people that you're trying to figure that out for, people that are close to you. This is actually about every single one of us in the church. And I hope by the end of this message you sort of see, wait a second, Jesus is actually calling us as a community into something that I've kind of just sort of avoided and ducked. Jesus says this. They have this conversation with his disciples actually about divorce. They say, Hey, is it lawful for anyone to divorce their spouse? And Jesus begins this conversation. He says, Haven't you read? And he's talking about Genesis. This is probably one of the best arguments for the fact that scripture is inspired because he's referencing Genesis and saying God spoke, right? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's very interesting, right? They bring up this conversation of divorce. Jesus goes back to the beginning and says, forget about divorce law in, you know, the, the law that Moses gave in Deuteronomy. Let's just go back to the beginning. And here's what we see. We see gender and we see heterosexual sex in marriage. We see gender and sexuality. They're not the same thing, but they're connected. And Jesus goes right back to the beginning and say, let before we get into all these conversations of what about this and what about that, let's just go back to the beginning and see what God created. And let's have the conversation from there. <coughs> And he goes on. So actually, so he says, so here's what he says. In the passage, that was read for you. That no one can divorce their wife unless their wife cheats on them. They understand the context and all this stuff. In those days, if you were a man, you could divorce your wife for any kind of reason you wanted. Like if a newer, younger model came along. Or your wife couldn't bear you children, which children were no RRSPs. So your future was your family. And so, if your wife couldn't bear you children, there was some curse on her, she wasn't any good to you anymore. And so, you would move on. And so, it was this culture, male dominated, patriarchal, where it's very easy for men to kick their wives to the curb. And in that culture, as a woman, your calling in life, what you would have embraced, is to say, okay, well, I live with my parents until maybe the age of 14 or 15, I'm betrothed or I get married to someone who now I come into their household and my calling in life, because our future depends on our family, is to raise our family that we will have a future. We will have future investment. They will, be, they will become adults and they'll work on the farm or they'll work in the family business and they'll create. And so that was your identity as a woman. So you would never choose to divorce as a woman because you, nobody would, you, you would be considered damaged goods in that culture. You know, and again, until Jesus came along, this is how women were viewed. And so you would never choose to get out of a, a relationship, no matter how bad it was, because you'd basically be choosing to be destitute and impoverished your entire life. And so it was a male-dominated, male power play. And Jesus says, actually, you guys are divorcing for all kinds of reasons. There's only one reason you're allowed. And so he restricted that for them. So that in itself was culturally kind of, so the disciples kind of half-jokingly said, like if you can't get out of marriage that easily, better not to be married right? Because that was their view. It's like, man, that's tough. Like, if you can't get out. (laughs) But they were joking because they would, you would never not think of being married because it was strange for a man to also be single and say, well, you don't have any inheritance or something wrong with you. Like, no family thinks you're honorable enough to give their daughter to you. So they were joking and Jesus says, ah, let's talk about that. That's a hard word, isn't it? And here's what he says. Not everyone can accept this word, what they just said, that it's better not to be married but only to those whom it have been given. And then he goes on in this conversation about eunuchs. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. We're going to explain this passage. What is a eunuch? I think we need to just say this. The alternative lifestyle to heterosexual marriage that Jesus proposes to his disciples in this passage is singleness. That is the alternative lifestyle proposed here to Jesus. Because they're saying, well, heterosexual marriage, like, you know, maybe it's better not to do that. He said, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. And then he goes on this conversation about eunuchs. Like, what's a eunuch? Because okay, this is a strange talk, right? But we're talking about sex, so here we go. So in, in the ancient world, like, it was common for people to have, like, um, like, for kings and rulers to have multiple wives and have a whole harem of women, but they would have these male attendants who would look after these girls and beautify them and make sure they were all sort of ready whenever for the leader of the king wanted to have sex with them. Messed up, I know. Um, but they would have these male attendants, but, it, but they didn't want these male attendants to be attracted to them or to mess around with them, so they would, you know, make sure... They couldn't. That was a eunuch. So he's saying, look, that, so there are people, in a sense, Jesus is pointing, and he's not talking to them about doing that to themselves. He's just saying, look, you know this group of people who actually are not in sexual relationships with other people. They're, in a sense, single. Now he brings that forward into the discussion. He says, now, there are some who were born that way. There were some who were born either without reproductive capability or they were born and something just... You know, it didn't work for them to be in a relationship with a woman sexually and bear children. And so there were some who were born that way. And then he says there were some who were made that way by others, who they were called into that service and that was done to them. And then he says there are some who choose to be eunuchs, like choose to be single, he says, for the sake of the kingdom. So he's introducing this whole new, in a sense, alternative lifestyle which would have been stunning for them, because in that day, singleness was not a legitimate state of life at all. And they had no idea that Jesus himself was actually talking about himself too. He was in the third category, those who have chosen to be single for the sake of the kingdom. They didn't realize he wasn't going to get married. They didn't realize he had come to give his life away that he was going to die and that his life calling, in a sense, was not to enter into a biological family and all of that stuff. Yes, he was a sexual human being, but he said there are some who have chosen to be single, chosen to be this way for the sake of the kingdom. See, because in one sense, it's not credible for me at all to be talking about this because you might say, well, you're, you're a heterosexual in a marriage. You don't, you don't, have, you don't have this problem. And you're right, in a sense, there are many things that I talk about here that are not credible to me to say in terms of the human spirit, but I'm just sort of stepping aside and saying, but Jesus actually is, not just because he's Lord, not just because he knows everything, but because he came into a world where marriage was the end all and be all as a single person who chose not to be in a relationship. And I think what we see here actually is a picture for those of us that are same-sex attracted that would say, okay, well, what is the calling for me in my life? What does this look like? Or for those of us that are opposite-sex attracted, but for many reasons have just not found someone or not landed in the place we thought we would in life. And actually, even for those who say, you know what, I thought sex and marriage was going to be really fulfilling and, and I'm struggling with that. Jesus is actually saying, you know, sex is not actually the end-all and be-all and ultimate defining, and the relationship you have with that significant other is actually not what defines your calling in life. And he says there are some who are born that way, as eunuchs. And I think the church has just engaged in this really stupid argument for many years about there's no way someone could be born with the same-sex attraction. I just think, why are we even talking about that? You know people, I have friends, people who say, you know, for as long as I can remember, I just knew I wasn't attracted to someone of the opposite sex and I don't know why and I wanted to be. Trust me, I did not want to choose this. There are those, and maybe some of you are here saying, I'm still struggling with it. Or I did and I just felt like it had to be sort of pushed away and ignored and a part of me that I just didn't even want to think about. And then there are some, he says, who have been made that way by others. There are others of us. Whether or not we felt like we were born that way, but things happen in life and suddenly we find, you know, I'm, just, I'm actually repelled by the idea of the opposite sex. I don't find them safe. I don't find them whatever. And then there are those who are like struggling with this and actually saying, you know what? I realize that this is actually a choice to make for me that I'm going to choose to not, not deny my sexual orientation, but choose not to be in a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex. It's the same process in a sense of self-denial that those of you who said, you know what, I haven't found that person. And some of you would say, you know what, I've just never actually been drawn to marriage. I don't actually want that. Sort of, as long as I can remember, it's not really something I long for. There are others that say, you know what, those are the choices of others. I would long to be in a committed lifelong marriage relationship with someone of the opposite sex, but no one has chosen me. Or the relationships I've been in just haven't worked out and I don't know why. And then there are others who say, you know what, I'm actually happy to choose this lifestyle of Jesus and following him for the sake of the kingdom. Friends, this is the alternative lifestyle that Scripture actually offers to us. Say, there are those who are in heterosexual marriage, and there are those for various reasons who are invited into another lifestyle the lifestyle that Jesus actually chose for the sake of the kingdom. What does that mean for the sake of the kingdom? Remember we talked about how how Jesus actually offers us through his kingdom purpose in life? It's this process of saying, actually whether I'm married or single, what I am choosing is to have my life be a display for God's life and love and glory in the world. That my purpose in life actually is not to find ultimate fulfillment. And this is the struggle, right? Because if this is why the conversation on sexual identity is so important. Because if sexual identity is identity, then you cannot tell me that I have to remain single. You're, You're telling me that I have to repress who I am. But if sexual orientation is actually secondary to another kind of identity that we have, which is actually not about gender or sexual orientation, but about being children of God, then it's, as children of God, we say, God, direct my life. I have a sexual orientation, but I'm not actually going to let that direct my life. I'm going to let you direct my life. I'm going to let you tell me what I'm going to do about this sexual orientation. You get that? It's not about saying repress yourself or undo yourself or change yourself. It's about saying at your core your identity is not a sexual one. It's a relationship with God one and a relationship with the world around us. Now you may be thinking, well that that doesn't sound like Jesus. You know, that, that he would ask something so difficult like that. You might say, well, you know, scripture, that, those are, those were, that was hundreds of years ago. Maybe Jesus didn't envision what life would be like and where we want. And that's an, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Where does the, if we can say, the trajectory of scripture go? And it's interesting. If you look at a number of other issues, we do see actually more and more freedom and more and more stuff that we say, oh, this is right. For example, the trajectory of scripture moves from polygamy to monogamy right? Like we look at, you say, well, has, has, those are old values of the Bible. Well, yeah, sure. There were values you look at in the scriptures. not like God ever said, marry a whole bunch of people. He always said, marry one person. But they had There's some of these very common ancient practices where people with multiple wives and all that stuff. And what's interesting is the scriptures, even though they recount those people, say, well, how God is. people have multiple wives and treat and have all these midwives and all of this stuff? Not midwives. What do they call them? Um, concubines. concubines and other things yes other names all of this stuff right it's like that's so messed up how could god allow that every story about someone with multiple wives it always goes south which is actually odd for really ancient literature because they would have thought no there's nothing abnormal about that and yet every story about someone with another wife it always goes bad and then over time as scripture begins to unfold we see this movement towards, and it says, hey, people, those who are in the body of Christ should be the husband of one. There's one husband, one wife. So we see this movement, yes, from polygamy it's something we go, no, that's something messed up, to monogamy. You're like, yeah, that's right, committed relationship, that makes sense. We've also seen this other movement from slavery, like there were slaves in scripture, and we say, well, how could there be slaves? How come Jesus didn't say in Paul? Well, we see actually this subtle movement in scripture from slavery to freedom when the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, now in Christ there's no more slave or free. We see this like, repressive, oppressive sort of institution of slavery um, and, and not only chattel slavery but sort of uh, personal sort of indemniture, like that being removed and you don't have to pay off this debt and get free and all of a sudden now you have slaves leading house churches in the early church. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you're a, if, just because you're a church leader on Sunday, you're a slave on money. you still kind of work that out with your master. But we say, you know, it was the Christians, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, uh, and before him, William Wilberforce, said, in Jesus, there should be no slavery because each person has their inheritance. So we see this movement from, from slavery to freedom. We also see this movement from patriarchy to equality, right? In the Old Testament, especially, we see these kind of uh, where the patriarchs and was male dominated or whatever, and then Jesus begins to come, what? And we see actually female disciples with him. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus like a disciple would, learning from him. We see the women were the first eyewitnesses to the defining moment of our lives as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are women at the tomb. We see women leading in the early church, and so we see this movement from patriarchy to equality. Well, what about sexuality? Do we see a movement? Jesus said, go back to the beginning, heterosexual marriage. Do we see a movement to be more permissive in that area? Actually, we see the opposite. We see heterosexual marriage at the beginning. Saying, this is good. To Jesus saying, here's something else. Jesus legitimizing singleness and saying, I'm actually coming as a single person. I'm not married. And I'm the founder of this new movement. And then to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually says, you know what? And he was single. And we don't know whether it was because he never was married or his wife had died. But he was not married. He said, I kind of wish most of you were like me. I mean, if you have to get married, get married. But it'd be better to be single. Whoa different trajectory altogether. From heterosexual marriage to singleness being legitimized to almost some people saying, hey, singleness is better. Why? For the sake of the kingdom. Something has changed in the history of human beings and now it's not actually about our sexuality. It's not now about our biological family and how many kids you have and whether you can propagate your name because Jesus actually says, you know what? One day they said, he said these really offensive things about the family unit you know, they said, his, your mother and brothers are at the door. He says, actually, this is this crowded room, right? Jesus is teaching his mother and brother's at the door. The proper answer of a good um, honoring near Eastern man would be, oh, please make way for my mother. He says, actually, my mother and brothers are anyone who does God's will or my will. It's like, what? The family unit biological family. Marriage is now not the end-all and be-all anymore. There is a trajectory and a movement because of the kingdom of God, because God has inserted himself into this world, and now everything is beginning to change. And now there's this new family, which is the church. And so essentially there are two ways that we as Jesus followers have to express our sexuality, either in heterosexual marriage or as a celibate single not denying our sexuality not repressing our sexual orientation but choosing to say jesus i want you to provide me fulfilling relationships that are not sexual relationships and that's actually what someone who is same-sex attracted is being invited to, it's someone who is opposite sex attracted and not in marriage is being invited to. And even for those of us that would say, Well, I'm in marriage, but I have not found sex sex in marriage to be, you know, everything that I thought it would be, you are being invited into with that person that you are married to, but also a community around to say, what does it mean to have fulfilling relationships that aren't sexual relationships? It is an idea that is so countercultural to us, and yet that Jesus presents as an alternative lifestyle. There's a great tension when we say this out loud, right? And here's the tension. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine who did not grow up in the church and he was gay and we were talking about this, his life and also church and God. And he says to me, VJ, like if I pursue God, like would God ever lead me to another man? Like would he ever allow that? And I said to him, look, I don't know, but I don't think so not based on what I read in Scripture and the life that Jesus invites us into. And I left that day, and I was, I was so upside down inside me. Do you know why? Because I was asking him to die to something in him. And I was reflecting on my life and thought, you know what? I've really died to nothing. Nothing. This is the problem actually we have as the 21st century church. We can't imagine that Jesus would ask someone to do something this difficult because he's never asked us to do anything difficult. We can't imagine that Jesus would ask someone to die to their sexual desires because we've died to Nothing. And I don't just mean it's heterosexual marriage. I mean, we have a whole mentality of following Jesus that does not include what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, they must take up their cross and die to themselves every day. So don't go asking somebody to die to themselves before we say to ourselves, Jesus, what does it mean for me to die to my desires? I have desires, I have plans, I have hopes, I have inclinations some of which I know are wrong, and others of which I just say, Jesus, I don't know how, how this could be wrong. That's actually not what Jesus is asking you to do, to decide whether those desires and where they come from and everything. It's actually to say, would you be willing to surrender them to me? And it's different for every one of us. And I actually said to him, I said, you know, I struggle with that question because I said, I, I know what it means to be a pastor in other parts of the world, is that you could, you're going to be poor. You might lose your home. Your church might get burned down. Your wife might get raped or killed. And your children might get abducted. I know there are pastors living in that reality today. And I say, you know, I don't know why God has never asked that of me. And I don't know what I could do if he did. I don't know. But I better be answering the question, God, what are you asking me to die to today? Because Jesus says, you want to follow me? You've got to trust me. And some of it is going to feel so easy, like the wind at your back, like saying, Oh, yeah, I want to do this. And others of it's going to be like, Really, Jesus? Really? You're asking this of me. And here is the thing that he's asking, actually, every one of us. You're like, I'm not really sure what Jesus is asking me to die to. And there may be other things in your life, but let me tell you what he has asked all of us to do, which is to die to ourselves and enter into a family that is the body of Christ. Because this mentality and this idea that somehow we have Christians in our heterosexual marriages and in our biological family units, well, that's what real life is. And then I'm also involved in this thing called the church. No. Jesus says, you've been baptized, you've been baptized into a new body, a new family. And that the greatest priority in your life is not actually just to make sure that you and yours are looked after. But that there is this new radical community where there are married people and there are single people where there are opposite-sex attracted people and there are same-sex attracted people. And all of us together are saying, what does it look like to actually find intimacy together without sexuality as being the main thing that defines our relationship? And until the church becomes that way, people in a sense who are either by choice or by the choice of someone else or born that way who are saying, okay, well, Jesus asked me to embrace a life of singleness, but that just basically means to embrace a life of loneliness because the church actually isn't a family. This is what it means for every one of us to grow, to become a community. We're saying, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what has failed or is failing in your biological family life, this is a different place. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Um, first of all, my, my numbers are at the bottom of the bulletin, if you have more questions about this, I kind of want to do an additional podcast, not a sermon, but just a drive home podcast on some of the questions that may be coming up, because I know there's lots, and I know I haven't addressed most of those, so you can text me those, and I'd love to just kind of sh- let that shape maybe, maybe a few podcast episodes. But first, I just want to invite you to a step of surrender. All of us, actually, that we would say, okay, what does it mean to surrender my sexuality to Jesus? For those of you not us that are married and you say, you know what, it's been unfulfilling or difficult in our marriage. What does it mean to surrender unmet desires to him? For those of you that are single, regardless of your sexual orientation, you say, what does it mean to actually submit my sexual desires to Jesus and say, Jesus, you got to lead me into relationships that are fulfilling and real and deep and intimate, but that aren't romantic in nature. Like, that's what I'm asking. If you're asking me to give this up, you need to give me this. Help me find that in this church, in this community. And then secondly, to take a step of building community. As we go into this summer, I just want to encourage you, open your dinner table to people in your life. You know, maybe you know people who are same-sex attracted in our congregation, struggling with it. Maybe you know people who are either they're struggling in their marriage or they're struggling in their biological family or they're, they're not married and we don't want to have this divide. Or maybe you as a single person saying, you know I, I kind of feel awkward inviting a married couple over to my home. Don't. Open your dinner table. We need to have places in community where we begin to experience the intimacy that Jesus offers us in his body, in his church. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we need you. We need your wisdom, but we need your life experience like you have lived this road in our shoes. You know what it's like to have people look at you sideways for not being married. You know what it's like to struggle with unfulfilled sexual desire. You know what it's like to be human in this world. You also know that every one of us has brokenness in our heart, and it looks different. But you are the healer. You never walked by a sick person or a dead person without stopping and breathing life and speaking life into them. And so just pray that you would be ministering to each of us right where we are, but also bringing us together as your church to be this new kind of community that actually deep down every one of us is longing for. We just thank you for your love thank you for your grace. We thank you that when we come to you with questions and our hearts and our minds are upside down that you are strong. So just look after us. God, care for your children. We pray in your name. Amen. This morning, one for you personally and then one for our church. This for you personally. I just want to bless you with an ability to bring this stuff to Jesus. Like an experience of conversation with Him where you feel like, okay, Jesus, you got to lead me in this. Wherever you are, in your journey with Him, and even if you've never actually turned to Jesus and talked to Him, that prayer is this beautiful gift. So I want to bless you with a prayer life around this. And then I want to bless our church, that God would teach us what it means to be a community, a new family that's able to love and be loved, where sex and sexual relationships and biological family are not the defining marks of this church, but the radical grace of God the radical inclusion of Jesus Christ and a community that crosses all of the walls that we build up between us. God, do this in us, not just this year and the next year, but this would be a church that for generations experiences love like that. Did you receive that? Amen.